Perpetual sorrow. Wow, is no, that in the it wasn't called that? But isn't that so metal? <laughs> I, I believed you. I also like didn't violate the core tenets of Catholicism in any way growing up, and Brian did. So you know, like my my Catholicism was like casual because it was like you're cool, you're a virgin who can't drive. Which tenet of Catholicism did you think I violated? Thou shall not steal. Because I've stolen your heart. Mm. <laughs> All right. Well, welcome to the Limbaugh, the podcast where we talk about the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Who's received it? Who should receive it? And maybe a couple who shouldn't. I'm Christine Sear. I'm Clay Russell. And I'm Brian Tuft. Anyway, what else is going on? We were just talking about an exciting upcoming film uh, that Clay was talking about where Nick Cage is going to exhibit his incredible range as a, as a thespian. And play a character named Nick Cage. Yeah, which is going to be a big stretch, but uh, I think he's going to nail it. I have high hopes for this film. You know, if a scrappy underdog who's part of a Hollywood legacy family can't make it work, then what hope do the rest of us have? And as Kim Kardashian so famously said the other day, the problem today is no one wants to get off their ass and work. By the way, I just looked up the title of this film. It's called The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. I'm on board with this film. Okay, I went from intrigued to incredibly excited, and we need to go see it at one of those places like the Nighthawk where you can drink while you're watching it. Christina's setting a Fandango alert. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the dictator is played by Pedro Pascal, and his agent is played by Neil Patrick Harris. How do we get an advanced screener? Brian, aren't you a member of the Academy or something? Yeah. Um, can you get us in? I'll see. Okay. <laughs> Next time. I'll call my friend Laura Dern. <laughs> oh, it actually, I'm, I'm reading it here. It actually premieres tomorrow at South by Southwest. Are you serious? Yeah. Which no one okay. should be going to. Like, the, the amount of people who I follow in the media who are like, I'm going to South by, like, girl, they're trying to ban trans children. Like, do not be giving that Texas economy your money. Stay yeah. home. Wow, wow. We have a Texan on the podcast, Brian. But yeah. I agree with Brian, though. Again, I predicted this a couple episodes, but I think that we are about ready to be entering an era of the United States where you are going to be more conscientious of where you spend your money and where you visit. And so, yeah, I agree. And Christine, maybe you're using Clay as a shield because even with what Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida, banning the word gay from every educational facility in the state, didn't you just come back from Miami? Mm. I might have. Yeah. You're I not coming have. to Pride this year. You do not get to ride the rainbow float. <gasps> no. You do not get I to dance to a Kylie cream. Minogue song on 7th Avenue. Can I at least have the ice cream? Maybe. So the unbearable weight of massive talent coming out April 22nd. Sign Can't us up. Can't wait. 
Yeah, what else is going on? I'm just mad at Kim Kardashian being tone deaf. We won't belabor the point because Brian already roasted the Kardashians, what was that, two weeks ago? I feel like there are going to be a lot of repeat offenders on this show, to be honest with you. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny, though, because Christine and I had coffee earlier, and we were talking about this thing, which for people who don't know, and if you're listening to this podcast and you don't know what Kim Kardashian did, I really, we need to check your news sources. What if a certain uh, co-host of the show doesn't know what you're talking about? Do you have a Twitter account? I have no idea. Yeah. I think it was uh, for a variety power of women series that they're doing. International Women's Day. Uh, They interviewed the Kardashians and Kim said that the ticket or the key to her success is that she likes, she works and no one likes to work right now and that everyone needs to get up off their ass and work. And she said this next to her sister, Courtney, who once famously said, I'm just not interested in working. I'll be leaving at 4.30 and no one can stop me. And to me, the idea that somebody who was born into generational wealth and, uh, you know, has more money than God um, said this is totally tone deaf. But the part of it that is so upsetting to me is after watching her struggle through the um, psychotic nature of her soon-to-be ex-husband, Kanye West, like, I had a lot of goodwill towards Kim. Like, I I was like, I I see you. You are living each day like Reese Witherspoon in fear, and I'm I'm here for you. And then she did this, and I'm like, you know what? You're a dumb bitch, and no one can help you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's not good. There's also a certain narcissism in saying something like that. Well, because also on Twitter.com, somebody who used to work for her, like, app developer, you know, remember, I assume she still has apps. I don't care. But um, someone was like, oh, I worked, I was, like, the editor of her digital app thing in 2015. And, like, I made so little money. I was shopping at the dollar store they didn't let me like moonlight or freelance anywhere else. And sometimes I would call in sick because I couldn't afford to fill my tank up with gas. So I guess that girl just needed to get off her ass and yeah, work. Right. Apparently Ken? so. Anyway, it's, it's just astounding to me. Like this, the celebs, I feel like sometimes are not okay. Like we had that. I know everyone likes to roast Gal Gadot for multiple reasons, but and enough champagne <laughs> to fill the dial. <laughs> um, Oh, Kenneth Brennell. Um, but she's far from the only one. I think she's just a little more, like, clueless than most because she hasn't been famous very long. But the idea that, like, the Kardashians are these marketing geniuses, and she said that out loud in, in a videotaped interview in March of 2022, like, two years into a pandemic, you know, there's there's – Kim, there's people who are dying. I don't want to get on my soapbox here, but I do think something that has been a major belief of mine for a while is that there is a large portion of the world out there that really is only looking out for themselves and their immediate family. And uh, this idea of this libertarian utopia out there where, like, everyone's going to help each other and through the power of the economy, we're all going to get by, I think is complete bullshit. This is my opinion. Uh, But that's why you need to have uh, the government in an intelligent and well-planned way being able to 
not necessarily create a uh, socialist environment, but to be able to be aware that some people will inherently become uh, powerful enough to hog other people's wealth. Yeah, or on the flip side, like the way that at least the United States, our version of capitalism exists, it's like we're basically saying if you don't have a job, you don't deserve to live. Mm Mm-hmm. Because people just seem to get upset about any public benefits that anyone ever gets. Um, Selectively, of course, because we all get public benefits. But, you know, unemployment or um, SNAP or affordable housing, you know, whatever it is. It's like, well, they don't work. And it's like, okay, so should they literally die? And again, that gets back to a, a large portion of the world in the United States, people assuming that everyone was born into the same circumstance that they were. And so if they're able to get by, then everyone else should yeah. be able to. And so why do we need to have public benefits? I will say, though, this week, um, I almost made this my Limbaugh um, or my Medal of the Week was going to be a Limbaugh. Um, where celebrities are just saying dumb shit all the time. Like, as yeah. somebody who on this podcast is famously the president of the Kirsten Dunst uh, fan club, one of the other, like, actresses from the 90s who I, like, really ride for is Cameron Diaz. And this week she did, I think, a piece with Vanity Fair, and she said that since she stopped acting, she doesn't care about her appearance. And she went on to say, I, like, never wash my face. And I don't know what it is about like celebrity like i don't know like who in big hollywood is telling people like nothing is more relatable than a lack of hygiene these people out there in middle america they're not bathing like everyone who's trying to seem like salt of the earth is like we don't bathe our kids until they smell like vinegar Kristen bell put that child in a bath now do it you're not relatable this isn't something where i'm like oh Finally, someone said it. I've been waiting for Dak Shepard to tell me that it's okay that my child smells like salt and vinegar potato chips. Like, where is this coming from? Celebrities. They're just like us. Wash your face. (laughs) Like, bare minimum. Like, if you're not then doing, like, a 25-step skincare routine, great. That part is slightly relatable. But, like, baseline. Get the... Shit off like if she face. said like, oh, I'm not doing any more procedures. I'm not dyeing my hair anymore. Great. Love that. I'm not washing my face. Girl, that's that's not hygienic. We're not doing that. Like Andy McDowell, who is almost half famous for having this gorgeous head of hair. And Groundhog Day. And Groundhog Day. I studied 18th century French poetry. What a waste of time. <laughs> she decided to let her hair go gray because she had been dying. You know, she has this like dark brown hair and she'd been dying it for such a long time. And I'm not sure of her age, probably in her 60s or 70s at this mm-hmm. point. Which she's not a profile recipient, so I haven't checked out her stats. Um, and like she, of course, still looks amazing because she's a rich celebrity. So like, you know, I'm sure she's getting like hot oil treatments and, and the curls are still toit springy and gorgeous but she was just like you know that's i think that's one of the things that as someone who's still in her 30s as of us recording this um and covered up my gray hair it's because i think there's this standard that it's like no no no. you if you have gray hair you're old and it's like well it's also just like a natural process that happens and maybe because we don't see a lot of women with gray hair you know natural gray hair who are 
under the age of like 80, you just assume it's like an old lady mm-hmm. thing. And so something like that, like Andy McDowell being like, okay, I'm still adhering to a lot of the like standards of beauty in, in Hollywood, but I'm going to let this hair go gray. It's just like, yes, Andy McDowell. Also, Christine, you're not old because you have gray hair. You're old because when you talked about the Kardashian interview, you said that it took place on videotape as though it's 1997. <laughs> did I? You sure did. I said on videotape. Mm-hmm. And she said that out loud on, in a videotaped interview. Oh my God. Wow. Okay. Well, then, without further ado, we're going to move on to our recipient profile, uh, which Brian will be taking us through Adela Rogers St. John's. Great name. Right? Yeah. And, um, yeah, so we'll be right back. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, which is where all these celebrity conversations happen, Clay. Um, Which I apparently don't check. Yeah, you just post a link to the show and log right back <laughs> Listeners, out. If Listeners, if I can interrupt <laughs> here, uh, I will be the first to admit that I am the most ignorant person towards social media. So if you can nudge Christine and Brian to, to post on the Limbaugh site, I would really appreciate it because I'm an idiot. I can confirm what? that. I've known Clay since, since people were mostly on Facebook and he was barely on Facebook. Yep. Yeah. Well, history has proven you uh, correct in that, Clay, because now a lot of people are fleeing Facebook. So you never really had to, mm-hmm. like... Flee, right. Engage. Yeah. Anyway, follow us on Twitter at Limbaugh Podcast, and stay tuned for Brian's recipient profile in just a minute. So March is Women's History Month. And with us recently digging into lesser known but incredible and fascinating recipients like William Fagey and Marian Anderson, I wanted to dig through the picks of Richard Milhouse Nixon, our 37th president, and pick a woman who was honored but may not be a household name. Uh, now, we here at the Limbaugh have said many times that a president's medal picks provide a unique insight into who that president is or was. Uh, and Dick Nixon? Is no exception. His <laughs> class of 1969 has three astronauts who had just returned from their trip to the actual moon. Um, and we know that Richard was very horny for space. Awarded it with distinction, the Apollo with, 11 with astronauts. Yeah. Um, also sprinkled throughout his uh, 28, I believe, picks are nine journalists, which is ironic, <laughs> since his second term ended with a helicopter ride sponsored by Woodward and Bernstein. <laughs> and perhaps most telling of all, of his 28 medals... Only two of them went to women. Happy International Women's Month, everybody. Uh, No offense to Leela Bell Wallace, who was awarded alongside her husband for founding the Baby Boomer Bible Reader's Digest. But compared to our selected recipient, she is nowhere near as interesting. Uh, Adela Rogers St. John's, someone Time Magazine once called the world's greatest girl reporter, was born on May 20th, 1894 in Los Angeles, California. Rogers was a journalist, a novelist, and screenwriter. As a screenwriter, she authored a number of silent films, but is best remembered for her groundbreaking exploits as the greatest girl reporter and splashy celebrity exclusives for Photoplay Magazine. Uh, She dropped out of Hollywood High, which... The idea that Hollywood High has not been a CW original series. I mean, come on. Wait, and if she was born in it, this was like in the 19-teens? 
Uh, yeah, she dropped out in 1910. Oh. Wow. We need to make uh, she, a show, for sure. Yeah. Hollywood in 1910? Ugh. Like, just, uh, but, like, if you are in Los Angeles and you walk past Hollywood High, there's a mural of all of, like, the famous people who've gone there. Um, and Judy Garland uh, actually attended classes there while she was filming The Wizard of Oz. Like, this, <gasps> is, a, th- this is a high school steeped in movie-making magic history. Yeah, that's an incredible Netflix series right there. I love that. We're doing a podcast. We're getting a Netflix deal. Things are happening. Eat your heart out, Harry and Meghan. (laughs) Uh, Della got her first job as a reporter at William Randolph Hearst's San Francisco Examiner. Hearst was a friend of her father who was a prominent L.A. criminal attorney named Earl Rogers. So naturally, she reported on crime. Uh, She went on uh, to cover politics, uh, society pages, and even sports news, and was the first female journalist to ever gain access to the press box at a sporting event. Uh, When she was turned away and they said that there were no women allowed in the press box, she said, well, if I'm not in there, who's going to cover it? And they let her right in. Love that. Awesome. At some point, uh, James R. Quirk became aware of her newspaper work and offered her a job writing for his fan magazine, Photoplay. Her celebrity interviews were part of a uh, big push to make the magazine more successful, and she built relationships with uh, movie stars like Mary Pickford, Judy Garland, Joan Crawford, and Gary Cooper, and was also uh, very close with the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. Uh, actor John Gilbert uh, once proposed to her after being rejected by Greta Garbo, and a great friend of hers was Clark Gable. And we're going to circle back to Clark before Mm. the end of this. Um, A piece on Medium about St. John's that I read put it best, which was, she got to know her subjects, she didn't hide the nasty bits, she loved Hollywood, and managed to keep her head while many stars lost theirs. And thanks to her family friend, William Randolph Hearst, uh, she was great friends with his mistress, Marion Davies, which gave her even more access to Hollywood. And it is rumored, but cannot be proven, that at some stage, Hearst paid her to collect dirt on Orson Welles after he had put out Citizen Kane, uh, which I thought was a very nasty little bit that he had hired this reporter who was in the Hollywood circles to kind of put together some information for the hit pieces that they were running after the release of that movie. Wow. So I feel like I have done a good job of kind of covering who this person was you could understand why she would get the medal based on this alone, but we're gonna get, we're, we're gonna climb up a little higher. Oh. In 1932, she wrote a piece called "What Price Hollywood," which tells the story of an aspiring actress who works at a bar and one night meets a famous movie star, and he is so taken by her he puts her in his new movie, and it details the good and bad things that come with her newfound fame. This story may sound familiar because it went on to inspire another just little project called A Star is Born. I was just going to say A Star Whoa. is Born. <laughs> uh, so much so that uh, RKO Pictures actually threatened to sue the studio that put on the original Star is Born in, I think it's 1938. And... Eventually, they decided not to proceed with it, but um, essentially, she kind of put together a a piece. It became a screenplay that uh, she wrote, and it essentially is the bare bones A Star is Born um, that has now been remade five five times. Um, Sorry, they're looking for O.J. Simpson over my house. I was going to say, are you hearing the same helicopters (laughs) I'm hearing? Because we only live like a mile apart. 
Some other major stories that she had a front row uh, to cover include the assassination of Senator Huey Long, the abdication of King Edward VIII in 1936. Who then became known as the Duke of Windsor. (laughs) The Democratic National Convention in 1940. The trial of Bruno Richard Hopman for the kidnapping and murder of the Limbaugh baby. Whoa. Uh, you want to redo that, Brian, or should we keep it in? I think we should I'm, keep it in. I'm keeping it in. <laughs> the Limbaugh baby. Famous era. Famous era, man. Limbaugh baby. Charles Limbaugh. <laughs> Charles Are all Limbaugh. Germans the same to you, Brian? I have that in my notes. Like Famous aerialist Charles Limbaugh. <laughs> um... <laughs> That was good. Okay. One of her uh, most famous stories uh, came during the Great Depression. She was tasked by her editor uh, to dress up as a homeless person with tattered clothes and only a dime uh, on her. And it was her job to live among the unhoused and report on the reality of their situation. Um, And this was due in part to her reputation, what was called at the time a sob sister, which was a uh, usually female writer who framed stories emotionally and just used like very strategic language to essentially manipulate a response out of the readers. The greatest thing, and I want you to know there, I'll probably do an update on this. She wrote a book that was published in 1975 called Some Are Born Great. And she details being on the runway to watch Amelia Earhart take off on her doomed flight. And they were close friends um, and knew each other very well. And in the book, St. John's claims that she knows where Amelia Earhart was due to something that Earhart said to her before she took off. Now, I have scoured the internet to find what the fuck this woman heard from Amelia Earhart, but the book, like I said, was published in 1975, so there's not a lot of coverage, and she's not like a very famous person, but you can get a copy of the book uh, that's out of print for about $20, so I think I'm just going to do that and just hear through this book. She was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1970 by Richard Nixon, uh, like I said, one of two women that he selected with that honor, and in 1976... At age 82 years old, after receiving her medal and, you know, going home to Southern California to retire, she came out to cover the bank robbery and conspiracy trial of Patty Hearst, granddaughter of her former employer and family friend. Uh, She was said to have loved every minute of work that she did on the trial, uh, sometimes writing 700-word columns in 30 minutes. Her reputation and newfound resurgence in covering Hearst's trial for the examiner led her to being a frequent guest on Jack Parr and Merv Griffin's late-night chat shows. Parr once famously asked her about a long-running rumor that one of her children was actually fathered by Clark Gable. To which she replied, well, who wouldn't have wanted to have Clark Gable's baby? Amen, sister. When asked by Parr what else she had hoped to do in life, she replied, I just want to live long enough to see how it all turns out. She lived the rest of her days in Areo Grande, Southern California, where she passed away at age 94 in 1988. Wow. So screenwriter, journalist, one of two women awarded by Nixon, and I'm going to say it all around bad bitch. Hmm. It is, like, astounding to me that I've never heard of her because this is an incredible story. Every time I, like, hit something where I was like, oh, there's this Time Magazine uh, piece linked here, I'm going to click that, I would, like, get a different name. Like, 
in the book, she talks a lot about um, her relationship with Judy Garland and how when Judy fell out of the studio system and like MGM wouldn't touch her, um, what that was like for her, especially since she had, you know, kind of essentially built the studio after The Wizard of Oz. She was also like, uh, with the exception of that story that I told about her being thrown out of the press box because she was a woman, uh, she really didn't face a lot of sexism that she talked about, but she was very ahead of her time in like advocating for other women. Uh, you know, like another woman who suffered in Hollywood was, um, Joan Crawford, who was a friend of hers. And she was always like very good about making sure that like she, you know, anything that she did for her, she covered her anytime that somebody was going after her, she defended her. Um, I know like, you know, the idea of like a girl boss energy is toxic and bad, but to me, the idea that like she was ahead of her time and being like, no, I don't want to just advance my self. I want to essentially advance womankind. All women. Um, Yeah. So I have to say, like, I know that this is the whole point of the podcast, but um, when I saw that there were only two and one of them, I mean, uh, maybe when we circle back, I'll do the um, woman who founded Reader's Digest. But to me, when I read this and I was like, okay, she's a reporter. That's interesting. There's definitely an angle there with Nixon and Watergate. Um, But no, then it turned out that she was like this incredible the only thing that she did not somehow have a connection to in history that she was alive for was like if she had been one of the people who survived the Titanic. I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Based it's like on her some age, of my yeah. favorite, most fascinating public figures. Like, oh yeah, she's friends with Julie Garden- Garland. She hung out with the Duke and Duchess of <laughs> Windsor. I'm like, my God. So the the book, which you're going to buy used for $20. That's like a memoir. Oh yeah, we're, we're starting a book club here at the Limbo. We are apps. I have to read it. I have to read <laughs> out it. of print book club. <laughs> yes, you guys. Spinoff. Hello. Also, since I'm uh, a visual learner, uh, while Brian was talking, I did a Google image search of her, and I'm going to say it. If no one else is going to say it, she was kind of a babe. Like, I'm seeing yeah. these pictures of her when she was very younger, stylish. and she had, yeah, the very, I don't know, I feel like it was 1920s era, those, like, waves, um, and, yeah, very stylish, and the idea that she was just, like, barging into, you know, well, okay, so it's interesting to think about sexism on her part um, that she had to deal with, because the, the overt one was, you know, not being allowed into the press box at an athletic event, but also just girl reporter. That's sort of a soft, like that's the a phrase di- itself. Yeah. Di- yeah. Diminishing language to describe someone who managed to like, um, I don't know what the right word is, like permeate Hollywood culture and get these incredible stories out of people. But it sounds like yeah. she was not cutthroat. Like she worked really hard and she got the story, but she was also fair. Um, and so the idea she was able to kind of like make this mark while being somewhat, you know, diminished by being called a girl reporter or a sob sister. And it's like, yeah, but then she, to use a phrase that Kim Kardashian used, like she did the work, like she got off her ass and she was and like, yes, she got her foot in the door because her dad happened to be friends with William Hurst. But like, so, you know, nepotism is always there, guys. It's always there. Um but look at what she did with the opportunity she was given. I'm I'm amazed. I'm a stan for sure. Uh, yeah, I think it was Time Magazine said like that she was cursed with the um, title of being the best girl reporter. Yeah, because why put her in that category? Like, how did she compare to male 
reporters of the day. I'm sure there were she was kicking a lot of their asses. Are you talking about uh, people like famous boy reporter Ernest Hemingway? Perhaps. <laughs> Everyone said that he was, you know, the boy reporter of his era. Totally. Um, so, obligatory, who would this person be today? <sighs> I put a little bit of thought into this of someone who when they were around, was almost thought of as a novelty. But through uh, their uh, activism, through their work, through everything that they've accomplished, that people eventually gain to respect them. And the person that I'm thinking of is someone who Brian actually saw in this last week, Elton John. In uh, the fact that he was one of the very first people to publicly come out as mm. gay, and uh, almost had at the time this this cartoon type of stage presence. But then through his relationship and his work with Princess Diana, through his AIDS advocacy work, uh, really uh, people started to respect him uh, and stopped looking at him as this uh, this flamboyant novelty and more as someone who, uh, through his work, was a serious person that, that really helped out people in need. I love that. I think that's true. Brian, when you, okay, so it's between COVID and Elton John probably not actually wanting to retire. I saw his like farewell Yellow Brick Road <laughs> tour a couple years ago with my dad. Um, and there was, I forget what song he was playing. Maybe it was Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, but there was like a video, like a montage of some of his iconic performances. Um, oh, it's I'm Still Standing. Yeah. And it was amazing because, first of all, like, he was, like, yeah, jumping off pianos and, like, the the bejeweled um, Dodgers outfit is obviously iconic. And there's a reason why Brian did that as a Halloween costume a couple years ago because um, it's just that good. But um, I just wanted an excuse to wear a cat suit out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> and you pulled it off. Not all of us are Zoe Kravitz, you know? Like, <laughs> we need to look for occasions. Um. Yeah, and it really, like, it was very poignant, like, kind of reflecting on his, how much he's changed and his, like, artistry's changed. And, um, yeah, so I think that's a good pick. Mine is, like, a little more boring because I was just, I was sticking with the writer, like, female writer with, like, a career spanning many decades, connections in Hollywood, yada, yada. And I thought of Joan Didion, only recently passed away. Time doesn't really exist. It could have been, like, a couple months ago, and it could have been a year ago. I'm not really sure. But, um, you know, she was married to one of the Dunn's, you know, the Dunn family. And she didn't just – she didn't really report on Hollywood per se, but she was, like, California girl. She posted a lot – or, sorry, posted (laughs) – Different era, different era. Um, she wrote, she was big on the IG, you know. She loved. She's a California girly, <laughs> of course. Yeah, yeah. John- Great captions, gorgeous captions. That feature <laughs> she did with Snoop Dogg was incredible. So yeah, she married John Dunn, um, which meant Dominic Dunn was her brother-in-law. Um, Dominique Dunn, who had starred in the Poltergeist movies and was murdered by her boyfriend, was her niece. Um, Could you imagine Dominic Dunn being in your family, just coming over and being like, girl, you are not going to believe what I heard at work today. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And just an all around fascinating woman in person. And and later in her life, she wrote just like a lot more autobiographically, more so than journalism or or whatnot. And her husband was, I believe, a court reporter. I think he because I thought of her, I think, when you mentioned um, that she had done the... um, 
the Hearst trial. And I was like, oh, and it just made me think of that. So, um, and I'm a Joan Didion fan. So I like, I would be happy to compare her to this awesome chick who came before her. I can say chick because I'm a woman. And you're a chicken. Mm-hmm. But yes, uh, that is a little bit more about Adela Rogers St. John's, which... Who is now the patron saint name. of this podcast. <laughs> mm-hmm. I do feel like her, her name probably sounds incredible when read by a fast-talking announcer in a newsreel before a movie starts. Yes. Oh, yeah, where it's like, Adela St. John was at yeah. blah, 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 as the yeah. boys came back from war. Real girl about town. <laughs> <laughs> and look who just stepped out from the shadows. It's Clark Gagable and girl reporter Adela Roger St. John. He's still buckling his belts. What could that yes. be about? <laughs> Wave to the camera, Mr. Gable. Well, Brian, this was great. Thanks. Yeah. Who would have thought, like, a little treasure like this, uh, just waiting this for us in the mix the and white house? This is the joy of this podcast. I love it. Discovering these great Americans. Yeah. When we come back, our medals of the week. rare that I give a negative Limbaugh for our medals of the week, but I feel like this person deserves that. As a Medal of Freedom podcast, we uh, like to stay in tune with the news of Medal of Freedom recipients and announcements and things like that. And a couple of months ago, I started to receive news alerts for Medals of Freedom, but it turned out that it wasn't related to the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Uh, The reason why I'm getting these reports is for a uh, law that came into effect in 2021 in the Florida legislation, uh, Statute 14.35, which Governor Ron DeSantis decided to establish his own Medal of Freedom to make him look like a big boy. What? Yes. To make him look very important, he decided, as far as I can tell, this is the only state governor who's decided that he's fancy enough to give out his own medals of freedom. Uh, And again, there are plenty of worse things going on in Florida right now. All you need to do is look at the news to realize that. But since we are a medal of freedom podcast, I just want to talk about how bullshit it is and just how completely uh, a distraction it is for uh, Ron DeSantis to give out a Medal of Freedom to his political contributors and just to show just what a waste <laughs> of time and money this is uh, that he thinks that he's fancy enough to to give himself the power to hand out his own Medals of Freedom. Dark question. Who is in Ron DeSantis' first medal class? Who do you think? Donald Trump. I, he's given out three. I can I can tell you what they are. I mean, obviously, Donald Trump, Florida's most famous resident. Mickey Mouse, Florida's second most famous resident. And number three, <laughs> Anita Bryant. I believe she was big in citrus and hated gay people. Two things Ron DeSantis is in line with. There you go. Yeah. So, yes, my uh, Medal of the Week. I don't think I've ever given a negative Medal of the Week before, but Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida deserves that medal. Fuck you, Ronnie. You're doing terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it in. <laughs> All right, as a as a palate cleanser from that, this one is a a positive medal. 
a genuine genuine metal. Um, and I'm giving it to a musician who goes by Eve Six, who wrote the Heart in a Blender song, which I don't think is actually called Heart in a Blender. I think it's called Inside Out. It's a Out. band, right? It was like a pop punk band. Yeah. Eve Six okay. is the name of the band. But like, I don't right. know. I guess it's the head guy tweets under the Eve Six handle. Okay. And March 7th, 2022, he tweeted, Sometimes I thank 17-year-old me for writing the heart in a blender line because he was like, here you go, buddy. This awful line is going to make it so you never have to get a job. (laughs) (laughs) And first of all, I love any time we get an insight into the experience of someone who's um, either an outright, like, one-hit wonder, just kind of has a lightning-in-a-bottle moment and, and gets to have this, like, otherworldly experience because of it and i think it happens in music maybe more often than other elements of pop culture like you don't Mm -hmm. really have a one-hit wonder like movie star or maybe you do right um prove me wrong you can become a supporting actor or a lower build actor after your big hit you can't necessarily do that in music so the idea that like when you're 17 years old and you're just like rhyming a bunch of stuff and then this man what is it i don't know when the song came out hang on tab open Nineteen ninety eight, late nineties. Yep. yep, I was like, I was in high school, so I can narrow it down. Um, now everyone knows how old I am. I'm not great at math. It's twenty twenty four years later, and he's still never had to get a real job. I love that for him. And so I was already like, all right, this is hilarious, and I just thought it was a good um, good thing to mention <laughs> for my medal of the week. But so obviously, so as of right now, the tweet has fifty nine thousand likes. <laughs> And so a lot of times when people have, like, a tweet that blows up, they'll, like, comment on it. And if they're a nobody, they'll be like, support my Patreon, like, blah, blah, blah. So what he wrote in response to seeing how this tweet went viral, he said, wow, this blew up like a Russian tank. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, yes. I think that, yeah, 90s punk uh pop punk bands are really having a moment right now between yeah. e6 and and blink 182 with, mm-hmm. with all of the the life things that have happened with them i know so eve six guy look you tweet under eve six i don't know your name but you don't seem to want to own that as your public persona like hats off to you and your dumb little song uh and for taking a jab at russia uh when your tweet went viral you get a medal yeah. from me and for having your song hit in the late 90s when you could charge $20 for a CD that people exactly. would need to buy to have one song. You had to buy the whole CD, kids. Exactly. The reason that he can still not have a job. Yeah. Good for him. I'm sure there are people with number one songs that are going to be on the charts for six months that will need to get a job two years later because you yeah. definitely aren't asking people to give you $20 every time they listen to the song. I mean, Megan Trainer served Christine and I at Starbucks earlier. <laughs> <laughs> um, and to his credit, I mean, it's possible he also, you know didn't get into cocaine or like buying a bunch of crazy shit and just managed his money really well. But like whatever it was, here he is in 2022 coasting on the heart and a blender song. Also considering that's not the name of the song. And I can t- say to you guys, the heart in a blender song, and you know exactly what song I'm talking about. Like he just did something. He just got in all our brains and good for him. You know? So my medal of the week didn't give us any phrase as iconic as heart in a blender. Um, but recently, um, I've had some work done on my house, um, 
and I've been having people over uh, from time to time. That's nice. Just kind of see what What things... people, Brian? Has Clay come over to your house? <laughs> no. Mm, weird. <laughs> Famously, he, he has not been invited. Not allowed. <laughs> Clay, you know, defenders, don't worry. He's coming to my house to watch the Oscars. He, he'll, he will, he'll get to see Inside Shangri-La eventually. <laughs> You know, um, we should either film, record, or live tweet me getting the tour of your house <laughs> and my reactions in real time. I love that idea. Um, but this week, I had a friend over for dinner, and I did not know what I was going to make. And I went to the supermarket, and I decided that I was going to make Julia Child's beef bourguignon. And it's something that I've made, I would say, maybe like, a dozen times in my life, um, I've gotten to the point now where, like, I know the recipe. Just, I don't need to look at it. I can shop it uh, and pretty much hit it out of the park. And it just kind of made me, every time I make it, it makes me think about Julia Child and the impact that she has had on, you know, food and culinary culture and restaurant culture in the United States. Because I got to be honest a lot of the cookbooks before hers, not great. A lot of jello in places you shouldn't be putting jello. And I feel like, you know, obviously there is a chapter on aspects in Mastering the Art, uh, Art of French Cooking, but just somebody who had such an incredible influence on, I think, culture at large, but most certainly me. Um, I always feel like when I make one of her recipes, like, you know, I'm being fancy, but it's it's really not. And she wasn't a very fancy person. And when I kind of thought about this, I went to her Wikipedia page and I am shocked to see that she does not have the Medal of Freedom, which Aww. I cannot believe because that she feels like somebody who Obama would have given it to. So justice for Julia Child. Also, shout out to Julia Child because there's leftover beef bourguignon in my refrigerator and I cannot wait to crush that later. Um <laughs> But yeah, truly, uh, without her, we would not have Martha Stewart, Ina Garden, the Food Network, um, and we'd probably still be eating a lot of Jello. I feel like President Joe vibes with Julia Child, so we could be seeing a posthumous like one a coming. Posthumous, yeah. Nothing would make me more excited than Joe Biden doing the bon appetit. Like that would be <laughs> uh, like I would just turn to dust. <laughs> aviators on navy blue suit at the podium like given a posthumous one you know i she doesn't have uh, she never had children famously i don't know who he's giving it to on her behalf but i just i want him doing like a i'm julia child like it would just it, it would kill me well now i want that i didn't know that i wanted that but now i really do <laughs> yeah i want a betty white Aww. julia child rgb rbg <laughs> Famously, all the, the all three women I've gone as for Halloween, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, she, and she uh, the other reason why she was on my mind and why I did this is because uh, famously she was on public broadcasting. She was on PBS, uh, you know, a woman of the people. But uh, this Monday, I believe, the Food Network is going to launch a new cooking challenge series based on her recipes and her cooking style, which I think is either going to be fascinating or terrible, which is my favorite kind of television. Like the Gilded Age. Yes. God, I can't wait for Monday to watch the Gilded Age. Carrie Coon, she's given you everything, every ball. She leaves nothing on the field. But I'm going to call it, guys. Great episode. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I killed it with the profile. I I feel bad for whoever has to go next week. That's me. Clay. <laughs> Good luck. Going to the Carter years. Or no, the Ford years. I'm not pitting women against women, but, you know, I mean, good luck. 
I'll try my hardest. <laughs> okay. Until then, bye. Bye. Fools rushing. It's the limit.